Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crafted on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, we've got a fantastic conversation for you. We are talking about shaking up the wine world and why we need to change up its business-as-usual nature. Specifically, we're going to be talking about a category of wine that we probably don't talk about enough, namely mainstream mass-market wine. You know, the stuff that makes up 90%, and actually probably more like 98 to 99% of what actually gets consumed each year around the world. And this is the stuff that sells somewhere in the price range of 11 to $15 per bottle. So just to be clear, what we aren't focusing on in this conversation are the wines that tend to win all of the awards and get all of the attention by wine publications, but instead we're focusing on the 30 billion bottles of wine consumed each year around the world. And just FYI, there are around 4.3 billion bottles of wine consumed just here in the United States alone. In other words, folks, the scale that we are talking about here is massive, as is the carbon footprint of those 30 billion bottles. Joining me today as our guest is the founder of Revelshine Wines, Jake Bilbro. Jake has been a Blister member for years, actually. That's how Jake and I first met. And he did what lots of Blister members do, which is hit us up to help him figure out what his next ski should be. And that then led to lots of conversations about wine and the outdoor industry, etc. And then all of that led to Jake and me becoming friends. And these days, as we've alluded to here, Jake is now very much on a mission to shake things up in the wine world. And I very much share his vision. So in this conversation, you're going to hear Jake talk about what he is up to and why. And I think that this conversation is going to serve as a really interesting catalyst for a lot of reflection, not just about wine, but about a lot of the things we do and the things we consume. Finally, if you are listening along in this conversation and at some point think to yourself, all right, let me try this Revelshine wine stuff that Jake is talking about. Well, Jake sprung on me at the end of this episode a code that all of you crafted listeners can use to check out Revel Shine and go see for yourself. Now, I don't actually know how long this code is going to be turned on for, so if you're interested, maybe hurry up and go place your order at Revel Shine Wines and the code is blistership. As in membership, but you know, blistership. This episode of Crafted is presented by our Blister Craft Collective, which is a collection of some of our favorite craft companies and some of the very best companies across a range of craft categories that support the independent work that we do here at Blister. One such company is Bravis Brewing Company, which was the first non-alcoholic brewery started in the United States And today, they're still making some of the very best N.A. beers out there. 
You can learn more about Bravis and the rest of the Blistercraft Collective companies on our website, and we'll include a link to our Craft Collective in the show notes of this episode. So check them out, because we are confident that some of those companies are going to become some of your favorite companies too. And now, let's talk about the wine world with Revelshine founder, Jake Bilbro. Here we go. Well, I'm very happy to welcome my friend Jake Bilbro onto Crafted. Jake, why don't we start by just having you tell people about your very interesting history in the wine world? I'm a fourth generation winemaker from Sonoma County. I uh, I was born in vineyards and in wineries. We grew up playing hide and go seek tag in my dad's winery. I lived completely seasonally in regards to vineyards uh, and where we were in within the year in terms of ripening and, and harvest. Um, and simultaneously, uh, my dad was an extraordinary man and my best friend. I, and he was an amazing outdoorsman. He um, taught me how to abalone dive, how to spearfish, surf, ski, forage for mushrooms, hunt, fish, grow gardens. Um, he, he was just an amazing man who lived so in tune with the seasons and with the outdoor world as well. Um, and so I've always kind of said that I'm, I'm, if I have wine in my blood, I have the outdoors in my bones and, and where does one start and the other leave off? I, <laughs> My wife was a professional triathlete. Um, we met doing events all over, not just triathlons, bike rides, et cetera, all over uh, the United States. And and now it's taken me all the way to where my wife and I live in Ketchum, Idaho with my kids. And I, I run a wine business from here. And um, my kids are out on the mountain today as we speak. So, So I know you and I have talked about that you are kind of in your third act in the wine world. So you mentioned Act One, growing up in your father's winery. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about Act Two, and then what you're up to these days in Act Three? Yeah. So you know, growing up, first of all, it was just growing up a lifestyle of the industry. Um, the amount of times that I sat on porches with my dad and his friends and their kids growing up, and all I remember were um, unlabeled bottles of homemade wine and people cooking and people sharing. And we grew up in a, in a rural agricultural town in, in Northern California in Sonoma County. Um, but it, it was just a very humble rural way of growing up that evolved into my working for my dad and selling his wine all over the country. My dad started a winery called Marietta Cellars that my brother now owns and runs. Um, and I worked for my dad for 16 years and I got an extraordinary education mm-hmm both in growing grapes, making wine, selling wine, a- any aspect of the business that you would want to know. Um, that's how I kind of, what I kind of consider act one. Act two was evolving and my wife and I purchasing a small winery in the Russian River Valley uh, called Limerick Lane Cellars. Um, it was on the verge of foreclosure. It was having a, uh, it was having a very tough time, the original owner, um, but it was a diamond in the rough and it was something that I think most people forgot about. The vineyard was planted in 1910 um, and we bought it and were able to turn it around and kind of bring it back to its original glory. Um, 
and I'm and I'm extraordinarily proud of the wines that we made and and the accolades that we got and the places that it took me and and uh, that was a whole nother experience and education in 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 really elite high end wine um, and then Act Three uh, my wife and I were looking at each other and looking at that small rural town that we grew up in and realizing that it wasn't as small or as rural anymore and. <laughs> Uh, looking at what we wanted for our children and looking at what we wanted for our lives. And, and maybe the bones were pulling a little bit more than the blood in terms of, you know, the outdoors versus, versus wine proper. Um, and so we decided to move to, to catch him to Idaho prior to COVID. Uh, thank goodness mm. we were able to buy a house here. Uh, and, um, we sold them Lane, which was a, which was a very, very challenging decision. Um, but I, I wasn't in that world as much as I loved the vineyards and and that place and living in in harmony with those thirty acres and everything that we did. Um, you know, we as a family also love mountains and we love rivers and we love beaches and we wanted to be more places. Um, and so, Act Three was our evolution into creating uh, Revel Shine which um, we are the, the first to produce wine in um, multi-serving 500 milliliter aluminum bottles. They're uh, quote unquote double insulated. They're non-breakable. And um, this, uh, this is very much, and um, the genesis of this was both from a utility perspective, how can we get wine into the places that we love it the most? Because glass doesn't work at the beach. Glass doesn't work in a, in a backcountry, you know, skin track up to a yurt. Mm-hmm. Glass does not work in, in outdoor places. Um, and then even more so, and where I really drank the Kool-Aid was when we realized the, the environmental impacts um, that the wine industry has uh, globally and, what we could do with Revel Shine and, and, um, it, it brought it, it brought to a, a whole deeper level. What, you know, kind of my intention, I, I would presume at this point for, for the rest of my life in the industry and, and where I want to take it. Hmm. So that is really interesting in its own right. The move from Limerick Lane, I'm still a huge fan of Limerick Lane Zinfandels in particular. Um, I have I. I have stated my affection for Zinfandel's multiple times on Crafted. Um, that love of Zinfandel remains today. Um, but from that sale of Limerick Lane and thinking about Revel Shine, it really was kind of first and foremost for you. Like, I just want to get to a mountaintop or a backcountry hut and figure out how I can bring along some good wine with me. That is what got you thinking about the container part in the first place. You know what it was even more than that? It was um, at Limerick Lane, given the caliber of that vineyard, I was making some of the most uh, highly renowned Zinfandels in the world. We were we were garnering huge accolades and scores, and that was pushing me higher and higher into this very interesting and amazing and elite world huh. of wine um but it it wasn't that i wanted to be on a mountaintop with wine it was that i wanted to be somewhere with my family because what was happening was uh-huh. i was leaving my family more and more uh-huh. doing these extraordinarily high-end exclusive 
amazing events with extraordinary yeah. high-end exclusive amazing people celebrities and and celebrity chefs and and you name it um but i wasn't with my family and that you know that's not what i how i grew up with my father and so hmm. i um i didn't want to do that anymore and part of what we have at revel shine that i think that makes us unique and certainly makes us uh, I think more relevant in the blister space is that we made a very conscious decision to bring on um, friends within the outdoor space as true equity partners in this business with us. Uh, some of the most renowned skiers and snowboarders mm -hmm. and mountain climbers and surfers and musicians in the world. And, you know, mm -hmm. they help us to promote the brand. Um, I do not pay them. I do not pay them for an Instagram post. They are true equity partners and we are all in the development and, and genesis of this brand together when I explained to them what I was trying to accomplish. But the other part that I really wanted to do is I wanted the majority of my work hmm. outside of <laughs> email and, you know, everything yeah. else that we all realistically do. I wanted my work to be in places where I could bring my children. And the fact that my daughter surfs with Shane Dorian and just knows him as Shane yeah. um, is really important to me. The fact that my kids you know, ski with Michelle Parker, the fact that they, you know, I, I can name drop all of our yeah. amazing athletes and, and musicians, you know, the fact that we get to go backstage with Donovan Frankenreiter and they get to see the music and, and the world that he lives mm -hmm. and whatnot. Um, that's not a, you know, ski with Chris Davenport, snowboard with Jeremy Jones, yeah. we can keep going. Um, the, the, the world though, is that through their eyes, and through my eyes, actually, having been at kind of a pinnacle in, in a certain world of celebrity, not, not myself, but being amongst celebrities, I wasn't very impressed with those people. But when I'm around Jeremy Jones, I'm extraordinarily mm -hmm. impressed. I'm impressed with the content of his character. I'm, in, I'm impressed with his physical abilities. I'm impressed with how he's used his platform um, to, to affect his world. And I'm, I'm, and I'm impressed with you know, how he acts and how he, um, puts his family first, mm -hmm. you know, that, that to me is, is, is a true example of, um, of richness over wealth. And that's something that I'm trying to emulate where, you know, to have my kids know people like that and learn from them, I couldn't pay for that, mm -hmm. you know, and my wife and my goal is to have, to be rich with experience, not wealthy with money. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, hopefully we are doing right by the world in terms of our environmental, you know, approach to, to winemaking. Hopefully we're making a great product that's giving people, you know, the ability to pause and soak in this beautiful world around them and the friends and the family and everyone that they choose to share it with. And hopefully in the process too, I can have my kids with me a lot more and my wife with me a lot more with really, really great people who um, see the world the way that we see the world and see the beauty of those mountaintops and the yurts and the beaches and the rivers and, and everything mm. else. Um, you and I have talked a lot over the years. I've never heard you articulate the story quite like that. And I, I love that. And I'm thinking about just all the different craft verticals in general. Right. And there is something about, I think for many, maybe, virtually all craft categories, if you're doing excellent work in those spaces, it does start in a way, I don't know what the right metaphor is, but let's go with 
kind of you start moving up this ladder of sorts or you start getting into more and more rarefied air. And, you know, it's wonderful. We we celebrate excellence. Uh, we we celebrate, um, I think, scarcity. Right. Uh, if there is a certain vintage of something produced in very small quality uh, quantities, but it is of a, an incredible quality. That's kind of what we do in craft spaces. And yet when you say, you know, I, it's not the world you grew up in. It's not the world of wine that you grew up in, but you found yourself moving into the kind of this more rarefied air. By the way, we see this in the ski world too, right? Is that kind of the work that I do in the ski world or in the mountain bike world, you can start getting pulled into places that you never would have imagined, you know, 20, 30 years ago that, that I'd be having certain opportunities in these spaces. And, and so to hear you say that you kind of were intentionally looking to move out of that rarefied air, uh, and to come back to be with your family and be with your friends. I think that kind of resonates in a way that I, I actually suspect that many people working in craft categories and some of the winemakers I know would be nodding along hearing you talk, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, well, thank you. Uh, I think craft is a really, really beautiful word. And I think that it's, it's lockstep and, and synonymous in some regard with passion and and i think that sometimes success and 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 this whole discussion about act 2 in my life this isn't to be a humble brag yeah. you know it's not that i was with these amazing yeah. wealthy people or celebrities or whatever else it was I, I was and that's what it was um but what what really came from that was um a term that i've always kind of used <laughs> internally maybe we're having a therapy session here jonathan but i've always said that it's really important for me to have my insides match my outsides and i've that's always been a barometer and 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 the wonderful people who yep. i worked with and did events with and sold wine to and everything else but all of a sudden i would catch myself looking around going this just this this isn't matching me and and this isn't a judgment on them and and really it's not even a judgment on myself it's just this isn't my place and and i um there were contemporaries of mine and really dear friends who i'd love to introduce you to who i think that you should talk to on this show and you would you could geek out for hours with them about what they did and what i used to do um but i remember thinking they can do this better mm. and it wasn't because I was doing it badly. It's because their insides matched their outsides mm -hmm. and their passion was matched that environment and was comfortable in that space. And I just inherently wasn't. And I, um, I can still do it and I'm still happy to go do it and still meet those people and, and live in that world. But it wasn't, it, it, there, there was a, there was a disruption in the force. Mm -hmm. Something wasn't working right. There was a, there was a, a tweak in the line and, and, you know, in order to get things right, you know, we needed to change things. Mm -hmm. And, and to be quite honest, it, not without, um, a lot of consternation and not without some of my friends and people in that industry say, what are you doing? 
you know, you, you, you have reached this rarefied air. You're, and, and, and not to say like climbing the corporate ladder and hopping off the ladder or anything else. I'm, I'm building a very, I think, uh, mainstream mass market brand right now. Um, but I, but it just, it just wasn't the direction that I, it, it, not even that I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't going to work. It just wasn't going to, it wasn't going to be. So you've just kind of announced your intention with Revel Shine to build a mainstream mass market brand. That is not the kind of thing we typically hear, well, on the Crafted podcast. And it's not the kind of thing or the kind of companies that we tend to talk about in the wine world, in wine reviews. And, and this is one of the things I'm really excited to talk about with you. Um, because I also think this is, this happens in a number of other craft categories as well. We tend to really focus on the, the flagship, the almost the vector products type stuff. And you're going to share some information with us about what the actual wine world looks like. You know, there's the, there's the stuff that you and I love and the stuff that you and I celebrate. And some of it is very expensive and very rare. But talk a little bit about average, the average cost of a bottle of wine that is sold. Let's talk about the size of the market in those price points. Um, and this will, this will, I think, shine a light on sort of what I want to say called the sort of actual wine market. Say a bit about that. Yeah. Um, if you look globally at, at all of the wine sold, um, the average retail price globally average is somewhere between 11 and $15 a bottle for a bottle of wine. Um, if you look at the, the largest domestic in the United States, domestic producer of wine, they produce approximately 75 million cases of wine a year. If you're, if your listeners want to know who it is, go Google and you'll find a, a myriad of information mm -hmm. about who they are. And, and I'm, and I don't want to call them out per se. There's not, it's not a call out, but you know, it's just a statement of fact. I, it's a statement of fact that there is a tremendous amount of wine, a tremendous amount of wine that is produced and sold every year and consumed every year. Um, I mean, a tremendous amount of wine, uh, on the, on the order of somewhere around 26.6 billion bottles of wine per year globally. That's a lot of wine. And at Limerick Lane, the wine that I made that was the highest rated Zinfandel in wine spectator history, that was 450 cases, but I got a tremendous amount of press for that. Um, one of my dearest friends who should be on this show and he is the epitome of craft and passion. Um, and he made a wine in California out of an extraordinarily obscure grape called Rebola Giala. And it, that turned into, because he, he garnered so much, uh, press and following and, and buzz for doing this and other producers who made it, they actually had something annually called Rebola Giala Fest. Mm. And people would come and wine writers would come and critics would come to celebrate this. And in California, there are hundreds of thousands of acres of vineyard planted. And in California, there's somewhere between six to eight acres of Rebola Giala planted. 
it's not even big enough to move the decimal point. Yeah. It doesn't even, it's not even a blip, okay. but it's where the interest goes, both because of the passion, both because of the craft. And in the wine industry, I think more so than others. And it's probably part of what I felt that wasn't aligning for me. It seems that the higher that you go in, in wine, quote unquote, um, there's a level of, of, I don't want to say, prestige or pretentiousness, but there's a level of intimidation, I think, that's better. And there are consumers who might not know, might not want to say anything, might not want to feel weird about it. And it's and it's really built into the industry. You know, you can walk into a really great restaurant and there's a sommelier there to serve you and to help you to understand more about it. But sometimes that sommelier can also be intimidating and can also put you even more at ease. And, and so the way everything works, it's like kind of the higher up that ladder you go, that's where the focus goes and people don't want to talk about what's below it or, mm -hmm. or where they fit. And, and, um, I just, yeah, it, it's like what most people think of or understand or, or what, what the industry or critics or press show us of the wine industry is not reflective of what the total quantity that's being produced and consumed mm -hmm. by any stretch. Mm-hmm. And again, on the one hand, this is, I know you share this opinion with me, we are not knocking these exquisite, scarce, you know, in the whiskey world, we would say small batch productions. That's fantastic. And I'm glad that there are, you know, earnest farmers and winemakers all around the world working on these things that are interesting and, you know, there are avenues for, for us to you know, exercise our curiosity and expand our palates and the rest. I love all of this. And yet, what do we do with the fact that there are, to use your numbers, something like 26 billion bottles of wine being sold around the world in a given year? Well, let's get back then to the opportunities that exist around that monster size of the market. Well, and let's discuss something in there. So you're right. We are not calling anyone out and I am not knocking anyone. I buy wine from those producers. I love that type of wine. I celebrate that type of wine. Um, but let's go more into, it's not the size of the industry. It's how the wine is consumed and then the impact that that has. Mm -hmm. And so approximately 90% of the wine that is sold in the United States is consumed within 24 to 48 hours of purchase. And it's consumed within, within a time period where that wine is in the bottle for oftentimes less than a year, definitely within a year and a half to two years. Glass is an extraordinarily carbon intensive product period. Um, of the entire wine industry, 70% of the carbon footprint of the overall wine industry is tied up purely in the glass bottle and the production of it in the transport of it. It's heavy. It is not nearly as recyclable as most people think. Mm -hmm. um, you can recycle glass, but the cost to transport it empty glass, the cost to go through all the processes to actually recycle it, it's a carbon loss at that point. Um, and so what the it's, there is a very, very large market of, of wine that's produced and consumed. And the argument in, and, and the, the, 
the sleight of hand or, or where we need to look as opposed to that top 10% of the exclusive craft oriented, amazing, beautiful, ageable, everything that we all love and mostly hear about wine is we need to look at this incredible volume of wine that's being consumed. And we need to look at the fact that if it is being consumed within 24 hours to 48 hours of purchase, if it is being consumed while it's in a bottle for less than a year, there is absolutely zero need for a glass bottle. And in that case, if you can replace glass with another with an, another product, and in my situation, and I will tell you that unilaterally, the answer to that is aluminum. The 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 impact that you can have is is extraordinary. Our our bottles alone weigh sixty percent less than the average glass bottle. Aluminum is 333 times more recyclable than glass once the, the, the liquid that, you know, the, once the wine has been consumed. In our current Revel Shine bottles, we have aluminum that was first produced in the 1950s in our bottles. There is no other product that is as upcyclable infinitely as, as aluminum. Um, there's no other product that's, a, that's as light as aluminum. It's, it's, there's just nothing else that works that way. Um, and, and we can talk even further into the world of sustainability. If you wanted to say, what is the lowest uh, carbon footprint for initial production? It's plastic. Hmm. Because you can produce micro-thin plastic for a very, very low carbon impact. But a lot of that you then can't reuse and it's garbage. Hmm. Or it's impossible to recycle plastic then loses after you look at the initial fabrication of it um, glass and aluminum if you were to generate both of them from scratch they're actually very close to being on par with each other if you were then to reuse a glass bottle over and over again glass wins because then you don't have to do anything you just keep reusing the glass but glass breaks and gl people can't effectively reuse that so then once you get into a recyclable scenario aluminum outpaces everything uh, this is not a true data point but 20 to 1 50 to 1 there's nothing else where you can recycle for such a low weight for such a low cost in the united states consumer habits we are more likely to recycle aluminum three times to one over anything else we have uh we have the infrastructure set up for broad spread recycling for aluminum more so than anything else. There's just, there's nothing else that's like it. Um, and when you look at all of that, and then when you look at that huge ocean of wine that is produced annually and consumed, it, it just makes sense. And, you know, you could look at other things too. You can look at olive oil. You can look at water that we purchase in glass bottles. The, the impact that it has, regardless of how much I love Avion water, but to bottle a bottle, and I will use a name there because it's something that we all know, and I have no nothing against the Avion company, but to bottle water in France in a glass bottle, ship it across the Atlantic Ocean, distribute it across this country, if if you want to look at it through an environmental lens, that that's arguably criminal. I mean, it's it's so carbon intensive. I don't drink it. It doesn't matter how much I like mm -hmm. it. it. I just don't drink it. Because it, it, and that was too far of a step to say criminal, but it's just because, because again, you know, that may or may not have been known for a very, very long time. You know, you and I were talking before we started, um, recording, um, we're a, we're a big mutual, um, 
partner and supporter and and we're both very involved with protect our winners um a really amazing you know political organization helping with environmental education and impact etc and i was at the pow summit this year and i got to see um no it wasn't the pow summit it was at the the laguna film festival mm-hmm. where i was um amy ingerbretson uh put out a movie called hypocrite and they talked about um am I a hypocrite for being a skier, for being a snowmobiler, for being a surfer, and actually utilizing carbon to go enjoy the places that I love, but then sit there and say people shouldn't be doing these things because they're, they're, it's, it's having an effect on our outdoor places. And the biggest point that I took away from that movie is that if you weren't aware of your impact, none of us can really beat ourselves up that hard for it. You know, if you didn't know, if none of us knew, if it was, we thought we were doing the best, I, I have produced wine and glass bottles for immediate consumption for 20 years of my mm-hmm. life. I didn't know. Sometimes I chose a heavier glass bottle because I thought that imparted a higher level of quality to a consumer. I didn't know the carbon impact that that was having. I didn't understand that. But now, and, and what I so learned from that and had such respect for her for producing that movie was now that I do know, if I don't do something about that, well, then it gets a little bit funky as to then I kind of got to question myself or have the ability to question others. And so knowing the carbon impact of glass and the weight of glass and the cost to transport, et cetera, I choose not to drink uh, water that's been bottled in glass, regardless of where it was produced. I choose not to drink as much as I like it. I, I love sparkling water that's been produced overseas or domestically too. I choose not to drink it. Mm-hmm. And, and fortunately, in that space, there are alternatives now in aluminum, mm-hmm. and I recycle it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think what we're getting to here is kind of a, just the heart of the conversation. You know, some of us fancy ourselves uh, or certainly aspire to be on the progressive end of some of these issues, right? We like to think of ourselves as generally, one, understanding the world, understanding our impact on the world and then just trying to assess where can we make changes where can we make certain sacrifices where are we unwilling to make certain sacrifices right but it's it's the work for every one of us to kind of i think try to understand our place and our impact in the world and then make educated decisions that are in line with our value system to sort of do better as opposed to doing worse. And I think one of the things that I hear you saying in this conversation is, okay, well, maybe not a lot of us like you, you were, you were a manufacturer for 20 years making readily consumable wine and doing it in glass bottles. I was not thinking about the carbon footprint of the glass bottles used to house the wine I purchase. Well, now we know. And when I hear you say things like, hey, we don't actually need wine to be served in a glass bottle if that wine is not intended to be aged. Now there's just actually kind of no reason for it. Now we kind of get into the shifting of one, now we know. Two, then, I think moves into the kind of um, what I was talking to you the other day about sort of shifting hearts and minds in this space. And it's like, oh, so wait, I can still 
purchase a nice wine that, and it's certainly if I'm going to get together with some friends and we're going to have some pizza and wine and a movie night or something, let me just be a bit more intentional about what I need or don't need out of that wine. And, and I do think that this is something that in the wine world, we are just so used to that wine coming in a glass bottle. Now, actually, those fans of boxed wine might want to pipe up here and be like, actually, we just been drinking our wine out of, you know, cardboard boxes for a, a minute now. Welcome to the welcome to the party. But I think that is one of the things where you're saying there doesn't even need to be a sacrifice. Certainly, if we look at that average cost of a bottle per wine in that $11 to $15 space, these are not bottles that people are purchasing to store in their cellar to age for five to 10 years. So anyway, I'll, I'll volley it back to you. But I think it's like the more I hear you talk about this, the more I'm like, this actually does make sense. And frankly, we aren't even sacrificing anything here. We're not even doing anything hard. Well, no. No and yes, you're totally right. And one of the things that is so challenging about this new world that we are all faced with, where every decision that we make has a carbon impact, and it is a full-time job to assess you know, where you stand with everything and, and, and it's overwhelming and it's fatiguing and sometimes it feels hopeless and, and all of this other stuff. Um, what I love about Revelshine is it's an opportunity to say, Hey, here's a way to do this a little bit differently, but still enjoy your wine, still celebrate with your friends mm -hmm. and family. It's you, you can do everything you did. It's just in a different package. And I'll also say that if, one truly believes in in trying to you know move their carbon footprint to zero one can also choose not to drink wine anymore um but i and and i feel it's only right to acknowledge yeah. that but but i also can say in our situation we can offer such a more sustainable option for the vast majority of the wine out there we could be reducing the carbon output of the wine industry by hundreds of millions of tons of carbon annually it, it's a it's an enormous number um if that wine within that segment of the industry were were converted from glass to, to aluminum and something that you said is really important it is changing hearts and minds is hard and um to this point i think that number one we have decades if not centuries and and generations of of experience telling us and and showing us that how that wine is consumed in glass and you pour it and you pull the cork and you do all of that we intentionally made a multi-serving bottle so that you still pour it and share it i don't drink my wine out of the aluminum i don't like to do that i pour it into mm -hmm. a tumbler and i still savor it and smell it and drink it and whatnot we really wanted to bring our that that culture with us and i feel like that's something that other producers did wrong but the other thing that i'll say is that the majority not all i haven't tried them all and i would never say all but the majority of wine that's been produced in alternative packaging hasn't been of a quality level it hasn't been something good i, I don't think that and now i put myself into the camp of alternative packaging i don't think we 
have done the greatest mm-hmm. job to win the hearts uh-huh. and minds of consumers. And so one thing that I am trying to do is I'm saying, you know, I'm not canned wine and I don't want to knock canned wine, but I also, it's a very, very different experience, Jonathan. If you and I go out and we skin to, you know, up to the, up to Griffin's Butte that I can see right up my window, we have a great time. We skin down and ski down. And I'm like, Hey man, do you want a glass of wine? If I hand you a Red Bull can and you pop the top, that's a very, very different experience. Mm-hmm. And I use Red Bull can as that tall, yeah. cylindrical, identifiable can. That's a very different experience than if I take a bottle, an aluminum bottle, open the top, unscrew it. There's no cork. There's a screw top. Pour it into a tumbler and share it with you. Number one, we've shared something. We've rebuilt that that communal feeling. Mm-hmm. Number two, you're smelling it. You're tasting it. You're enjoying it. You're savoring it. You know, you can't. I think it's 60% of our, of all of our taste is affected by smell. Mm. And so when you're drinking out of a little can, you can't smell the wine. You can't, I mean, you can maybe kind of try to stick your nose into the little hole and get something out of it, but you're, you're not having that experience. And so, you know, I think that we can offer a better experience just by our packaging. And then I also think that we're offering a much better experience by the quality of wine that's, that's in that package. Mm. And, and, and the uphill battle that we have is, giving people the the confidence and helping them to understand and change the hearts and minds that you can do it this way and that we can do it this way. And I, I can certainly explain to them the impact that it can have, but that doesn't convince them that the wine could still be good. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, you know, when, when you and I first started talking about Revel Shine, I don't know, a couple years ago, the way you were talking about, you've already said it in this conversation earlier, but you were talking about, you know, that ability to throw a bottle of wine into your backpack, go skin up a mountain and enjoy a, a summit lunch with friends. And, you know, and this analogy works, whatever you talked about the beach, you know, we can talk about everywhere where a heavy glass bottle is not the right vehicle or a breakable glass bottle is not the right vehicle for a wine. And, you know, admittedly, I was like, well, that sounds cool and really romantic. I very rarely do that, you know, like, and so I was like, okay, I see where you're going with this, Jake. And I think that's really intriguing. I don't know that I'm somebody who falls into that particular use case, but now what we're talking about is the everyday scenario. And that now I'm like, oh, I meet up with friends all the time, right? Um, on occasion, a special occasion, I might be reaching for something new and really interesting where you're, you're almost, you know, you invite certain friends who don't get invited to these parties, but certain friends who really care about this stuff. And you're like, I got this bottle and it's interesting and come check it out. We'll kind of assess and test and, you know, see what we think of it. Most of the time, you're just getting together with your family or friends, you know, to have a movie night. And that use case that I think you've spoken about really well, um, it's really interesting for me to hear how you've evolved and as you've learned more along the way, how this starts um, expanding from being a like really narrow or a much narrower use case to where we're now talking about why can't we change how the vast majority of wine is packaged and moved and delivered and sold just by shifting up the packaging. Interesting. Yeah. Um, 
it's been an evolution. Mm-hmm. It, it started with utility. Um, although I will say that, you know, um, we were never making this wine assuming that you could be like Shane Dorian and you could go shred pipeline and then drink wine. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there was always an aspirational aspect in terms of assuming that the majority of people were not going to skin to a mountaintop and then have their wine at a picnic and then ski down, that it was going to be something that they, you know, aspirationally saw and a way to get them to, to understand mm-hmm. what we were doing and then maybe just drink it in their backyard mm-hmm. or drink it at the park or drink it on the beach or drink it recreationally in the parking lot you know, at the, after, after skiing instead of, you know, a Coors Light Mm -hmm. or whatever it was that they wanted. But this definitely has changed. Um, Jeremy Jones and I at the POW summit, we were talking and, um, there's a million ways to look at it, but, but two ways that have most stuck with me, um, One is that we have 26 summers left on this planet before there will be no coral reefs. That, that just kind of makes, gives me goosebumps and not in a good way. And the other way that I heard it, and it's the immediacy of it, um, is that our parents didn't know. They didn't know what was Mm -hmm. happening or how, and our children won't have the time to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about those two things in 26 summers and, 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 and I think about my children and how absolutely engaged in the outdoors they are in every way, mm-hmm. I, I really take that upon myself. And, and it, and it has evolved to where, um, I always wanted to be able to hang out on a beach and have a glass of rose and watch my kids play in the waves or whatever it may be. But now it, it's evolved to say, I want, I want that beach and those waves to be the same thing that they are now for them. I don't want them to have to live in an alternate world where that may or may not be as doable. And, and so it's, there's been an evolution for sure. That's a pretty powerful way of putting it. Our parents didn't know, and our kids are too young to do anything about it. That rather focuses the responsibility on, uh, onto us. They literally won't have the time because it'll be too late. And it does. And, you know, one thing that I'm actually very proud of is that there's a lot of, a lot of options in our world where you can make, um, a sustainable choice. And oftentimes this is a little bit of a self plug here, but oftentimes that choice comes at a premium. So you really have to choose Uh to pay more for the sustainable option than the quote conventional option, whatever it may be. Um, but we've worked really hard and very lean and very aggressive. Um, a 500 milliliter bottle, two thirds of a normal size bottle of Revel Shine, uh, retails for between 10 and $11 a bottle. So on that global scale that we talked about where that overall average is 11 to $15 a bottle, if you, played us out that's for a 750 milliliter bottle so if you played us out we'd be at about that 15 level mark but you have to think too there's bottles of wine that sell for two dollars a bottle you know like there's there's up and down this this level in a major way so when i think about us offering what we're offering for 10 bucks i think that it's a screaming deal I think it's incredible quality and I think we should talk about the quality of what's in the bottle. But I also think that 
we are not asking a consumer to make a yeah. choice to pay more for sustainable for, for a sustainable option. I think that's the cherry on top. And to me, that's where it's a real no brainer. It's like, look, I can give you exactly what you're getting. I can arguably give you better quality than what you're getting. And it's a distinctly more sustainable option. Mm-hmm. So that is the Revel Shine value proposition. It is more sustainable and we're not going to make you pay more for that sustainability. And we're also not going to make you hold your nose and drink shitty wine. So that's the, that's and, the value proposition, right? And this is why we need to get people to try it for themselves, judge for themselves, and right? I, and I would go back to our initial discussion about this and you can take it so many more places. So it's, you know, I mean, we, one of our kind of quotes is it's beyond the boundaries. We're taking wine beyond the boundaries of the traditional table. You know, you can have that table, be it easily at a picnic table on the beach. Let's not get crazy. You don't have to skin to a mountaintop, but all of the places where glass doesn't work, we work. All of the places where glass does work, we still work. And we're significantly more sustainable, significantly. And we're as good, if not better, than what you're drinking for the price. So let's talk about the juice. Um, yep. What is Revel Shine currently offering? Where is this stuff made and sourced? And how is it being made? Yep. So we are currently making a white, a rosé, a red. By the first, by February to March of this year, we're going to have a sparkling as well that I'm very excited mm -hmm. about. Um, I did not want to make more than that. We very much felt like oftentimes you can get paralysis from analysis. And from our perspective, from trying to start this business, if we're going to make a Merlot and a Pinot Noir and a Zinfandel and a Cabernet and a Malbec. And so our goal is hopefully through, you know, through our reputation, through, 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 I don't quite want to say it this way, but hopefully through my reputation and my history and my being in the industry, hopefully the reputation of our co-founding athletes who've stepped on board and are putting their name alongside of this. I, hopefully we are saying, yeah, you know, it's a foregone conclusion that we're making a quality product and we're making you one. So we're taking the guesswork out of it. And within that niche of what we're talking, we're making you one red wine and it's the best red wine you're going to get for the price. And we're not, we're, we're taking the, the concern of having to choose out of it. Similarly for a white, similarly for the rosé, similarly for the sparkling. Um, and I, and I very much intend to keep it that focused. Um, number one, because I can make a better product and I can make a more consistent product. But number two, because I also believe that, I mean, God, how many choices do we have to make in our world mm -hmm. now? And if we can actually capture those hearts and minds and really um, gain the confidence of our consumers, let's streamline this puppy. Mm -hmm. You know what you're getting. You know you're getting the best rosé for the money and the most sustainable packaging possible. You know, and you don't have to think about it. Um so we are producing the wine in Sonoma County. Um, we are producing wine. I'm, I'm very proud to say, uh, with both of my brothers. And so, um, my brother Sam is, is, uh, you know, handling the, the day to day production for me because I don't live in the middle of wine mm -hmm. country now. Um, he and I are, are very, very lockstep with our flavor profiles, with our language, with how we do it. I spend a lot of time traveling back and forth and, and tasting and working on it with him, but he is in charge of that. And we are producing it at my brother Scott's winery, which is actually Marietta. So going full circle, it was our dad's mm -hmm. winery that my brother Scott now owns and runs. And we, um, 
we custom crush it there. We leave space there and that's where we make it. So everyone is involved and it's, it's also in a, in a funny way, my dad's involved too. Mm. Um, and very quickly, I should say that the most iconic picture that I have and the most, the, the strongest, you know, visual that I have of my father, um, we would go to Alaska and we'd fish a lot. We'd go before harvest every year and we'd go fishing. And I have a picture of him standing in a stream in Ishami Bay out in the Prince William Sound. He's the only guy out there fishing. Um, it's the most iconic, beautiful, you know, stylized picture you could imagine because there's nobody else there. The colors are so vivid. He's in full cast. You can see the, the arc of the line behind him with the fly. He's, it's just the perfect moment. And if you look really closely, he's got a bottle of wine shoved in the top of his waders and he's drinking wine and fishing and he's the happiest man in the entire world. And, and, in many ways, I look at the wines that he made and I look at how he made them and I look at the lifestyle that he lived. And I think that we're just an evolution of that. Um, although we were able to improve upon that packaging and I think make something that has a higher utility for those places mm. and the places that he loved and that he also imprinted upon me so much besides, you know, just wine, but it was those outdoor places. So full circle. And it's really, it really makes me feel good that my brothers both have an involvement in this. Mm. Um, that's that's important. It's not just my family being referred to my wife and my children. My my brothers are involved too. Um, and we source the majority of our grapes from Sonoma and Mendocino County. We are always looking to um, work with sustainable growers, with organic growers, etc. Um, and we've found that they are also really wanting to work with us, which is a really... Um, that's that's really nice to see that other people within the industry are seeing what we're doing and wanting to work with us. So I want to interrogate you a little bit. You said a couple times here, you know, you said, hey, we can make better wine at this price point than other people. Talk a bit about the craft. I mean, that's frankly, I could say that, right? Is it, it would absolutely not be true, but that's a claim that I could say. Talk a little bit about why you are so confident that Revel Shine will be able to offer a better product at a, say, $15, well, price point, or actually $10 in a 500 milliliter bottle. Uh, but that just strikes me as something anybody can say. What's the difference between saying it and actually doing it? Well, um, fairly overtly, uh, my family knows how to make wine. We've been doing it for a long time, for multiple generations. Um, my brother Sam is an extraordinary winemaker who makes wine under his own label and re receives a tremendous amount of accolades. I've done the same. My brother Scott's done the same. Uh, it's what we do, and we know how to do it. Um, number two, I we have sourced grapes from Sonoma and Mendocino County for generations. So we have access to really good vineyards. We have access to, to things and we know where and how to do that. Um, I feel a little bit as if I'm bragging, but I, but I back it up a hundred percent that statement, you know, number three, it's um, well, let's put it this way. There's a quality level associated with a $10 bottle of wine. There's a quality level associated with a 20, a 30, a 50, a 200, a $500 bottle of wine. And it's not just that wine is good or not good. 
it's to me it's good at is it good at the price mm-hmm. does it match up to its peers and part of our winning over the hearts and minds of consumers is knowing that they're coming into this skeptically and mm-hmm. so with an absolute goal and an intention of over delivering so that we can give them an actual wow factor and i'm not trying to be as good as something else within my price range because i know that i'm Mm-hmm. It's not going to be good enough. I've got a spotlight on it or the skept- you know, the skepticism is going to be up. So we have to make it better than that, both from a price point comparison as well as from a packaging comparison. And so I can't tell you how many times people have come up and tried our wines and they weren't looking at the price point. They were looking at the packaging. And so they were thinking, okay, what is this going to taste like to that canned wine I had last week or to the bag in the box or to the Tetra Pack or whatever it may be? And they go, Wow that's real wine you're putting in there. I, I mean, I hear that yep. often. So, uh, that's, I, I, I say it because it's true and because we are doing it intentionally because we know that that's a, um, that that's how we're going to be scrutinized. Yep. I think I've told this story before. I don't know if I told this on the blister podcast we did, but we had revel shine wine at, a past blister summit and one of my good friends mike who really really cares about rosé like really cares and has been involved in the winemaking process with rosé and the rest i remember giving him revel shine rosé and he was like this is very good and i it just sticks with me because of all the people in my life, Mike is the person, he's kind of my like, I probably trust, frankly, I probably trust his opinion and your opinion the most about rosés. And I just was like, Mike, check this out. Tell me what you think. I, I'm not a rosé expert. And so this is what I often do with a lot of different products, like people in my life who I, you know, have more expertise than me. I'm like, well, what do you think? And I remember how impressed he was having wine probably the first time he'd ever had a rosé out of an aluminum bottle and uh and that was his reaction and so um i i think this is going to be fascinating the um you know the the changing hearts and minds and 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 really the way to get this done and make it happen is people are going to have to try it right people yeah. are going to have to try it and then they can just judge for themselves. And your job is to do exactly what you've just said, which is to deliver that wow factor and say, wow, for this, at this price point, this is indeed better than other options out there. So I think your work is pretty clear cut, Jake. Well, you know, I would add to that in terms of what my work is, is our industry operates in a certain way. So it's not just consumers who have a preconceived notion that wine is only good in a glass bottle. It's retailers, it's restaurateurs, it's people who work at resorts. It's, it's, it's everyone. And so it, it has been a bit of a boulder to push up the hill. Um, because we, you know, we're, we're now across California in 500 locations. Mm. Um, and that's really good. And I'm really proud of that. Um, so now three years into this, we're actually launching with a first regional or national retailer with Sprouts, you know, natural grocers, which is awesome. And I'm so excited about this. It's the first time where 
I can actually go onto a podcast like this and people say, well, where can I get this when you're talking about how we have to win them over? For the first time, we've been able to go through those existing channels. And now we're actually saying, well, you can go to any Sprouts in California and find it on the shelf. You can go to any Sprouts in Colorado and find it on the shelf. And I anticipate, and, and it's been interesting. I'm hoping and I'm, I'm manifesting and I'm being incredibly positive and optimistic about the fact based on recent conversations with other major retailers that we're going to get more. You know, I think that, I think that this idea of sustainability and I think that we're slowly getting people to see that this can be done a different way. And so fingers crossed that we have more where, um, more of your listeners and other people can say, well, where can we find it? And it's not just go to our website and buy it from us. That's a tricky proposition. Sometimes, you know, it costs money to ship it. It costs money, everything else. However, I do have a special code for any blister member who can purchase our wines with free shipping today. So, oh. <laughs> well, that's good. Um, Remind me to bring that up before we're done. <laughs> uh, that that's awesome. Um, I didn't know that was going to happen. So uh, very cool. Well, you, you met Aaron the other day mm -hmm. and Aaron being Aaron uh, shot me a text about 10 minutes before. Uh, and if anyone goes to our website and uses the code blister ship, B L I S T E R S H I P, uh, they will get free shipping on their, on their first purchase to try the wines. Blister ship. I like that. I've that's, <laughs> It's yeah, that's what the obvious name of a blister membership should be called, right? The blister ship. There you go. Thanks, well, Aaron. And we should say at this Yeah, <laughs> thanks, Aaron. We should say at this point, I'm sure that you've got an extraordinary staff who helps you do what you do mm -hmm. and keeps you in your sweet spot. I don't think I could tie my shoes in the morning if it weren't for my wife, Aaron, Eric. Andy, the others around me, I, I think I'd be in Velcro shoes and, and I'd be sitting on a whole lot of wine drinking it myself because, uh, yeah, we're, we're all good at certain things, but without Aaron getting me that code that fast, we wouldn't be having that conversation. That's awesome. Well, I think, yep. I think that again, um, we're talking about changing hearts and minds. I think it, this is also, we can think about this as the chicken and the egg, right? Uh, the fact that you're getting distribution, significant distribution, that is a very big deal. But the flip side of that coin is we need consumers to actually go purchase this stuff, right? And so it, you could, you could, there's problems that can run with a business sort of one of two ways. There can be a ton of demand, but no distributor wants to carry the product. But if we get good distribution, but then consumers are late to the game, thinking through the significance of this or even being willing to test it, well, then we're not going to make progress if we all agree that it would be a beneficial move, significant move, if it's just like, well, wait a sec, we can still drink the stuff we like and that we use to celebrate events with friends and family and the like. We're just talking about a different packaging. That's all we're talking about as the as the the switch up here. Um, but it does take people actually activating and being willing to try it and change some behaviors and patterns and uh, get over some sort of, I guess, conventional ways of thinking. Well, and um, to add on to that, I was incredibly naive in this when we started this. I again 
craft equals passion. I had a passion for this. It was something I wanted to do without really assessing and understanding the business and how hard it is to bring a product to a mass market. Um, and you're totally right. You know, I can do all of this work and get this wine into Sprouts markets. And if it doesn't sell within a period of time and they don't see mm -hmm. depletions, they're taking it out of their stores. Mm -hmm. They're not looking to carry it for the fun of it. And so, yeah, no, I've got to get consumers on one side lined up. I've got to get retailers and distributors on the other side lined up. You have to do all of that in concert. It is a huge play to make something like this happen. Whereas what I'm used to doing is I go out and get a really big review and I get a very, that very, very small portion of top tier uh -huh. consumers who come to my website and sign up for my mailing list, I can communicate to them directly that that new vintage of Zinfandel, those 450 cases are available and they buy it. Like that's, we're, we're talking a whole different game yep. here. And when you think about that ocean of wine that we're yep. talking about and my little person, it's, I'm, it's not just my production of it. It's not just trying to get retailers to take it. It's not just getting a consumer to go in and buy it. I'm also trying to speak when that ocean has really, really, really big producers who are speaking really loudly to those consumers already. So it's a, uh, it's a challenge. There's no question about that, but um, you know, hmm. what else would I be doing? I guess knocking on your door and skiing more often. <laughs> exactly. Get back out there. Yeah. We'll ski later. Get yeah. back to work. Let's do um, it. Yeah. Well, man, I, this is fascinating. And I, um, again, I mean, you and I have been talking about this when it was just an idea. And it is really cool for me to see how your thinking has evolved, where your edu the education that has happened with you, and therefore I get the benefit of hearing that as well. And it's a fascinating episode, I think, of Crafted. And I really love the fact that we very sort of unapologetically are talking about the mass market. And if we do care yep. about things like sustainability, we need to be talking about the mass market when it comes to everything, right? Um, we're not going to affect the kind of change that we all say we know we need if we're only talking about the smallest little elements in society in a given category. Right. And so I like the idea. I like the boldness of the mission of like, hey, um, we got to go change the thinking and the behavior of millions of people on this front. And we can do it. And I think today you've laid out a pretty compelling case of how and why we we ought to do it. And um, it's a big challenge. And I think it's also quite exciting. Well, I appreciate that. And I would say two things. Number one, crafted doesn't have to be small. Mm -hmm. I think that that may be a misnomer in there, not that you're saying, but mm -hmm. something that I even assume when I look for something crafted, I think it's grassroots. I think I'm the only one who knew about mm -hmm. it. But when I also think about kind of our, our greater world, I, you know, I, I have to, I think it would probably do me well to look at mainstream products that I can buy that are still very crafted and very quality oriented and look for opportunities where I could um, look for a more sustainable option or a more crafted op option in the mainstream spot, mm -hmm. not just in those alternative, you know, peak points. And the other thing I would say, uh, 
you know, I was at a pretty high level talking with some pretty amazing people and I made some shifts. I was also a Blister member before I ever met you. Yeah. And it was years ago when I sent an email mm-hmm. because I wanted to get some references for a new pair of skis yeah. and Luke answered yeah. my email. <laughs> and I was like, so when I, when I put those people on pedestals, I'm like, oh shit, Luke Coppa just <laughs> responded to my email. And then it came out somehow that I was in wine and he tied you into it. And I was like, I'm talking to Jonathan from Blister. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a little bit funny and surreal to me that we went from, a, you know, I was one of the people listening to this, to, to what we're doing, to the odd way that wine somehow worked, that yeah. you liked Zinfandel, that we started talking to, to the night that we've hung out at your house and drank too much bourbon too yep. late to you've been here and we've been out mountain biking and doing events together. Yeah. So it's funny where it goes, but I, I'm very grateful. And that shift that I made to get more into the world that I wanted to be, uh, it's really nice that you're a part of that world. Cause that's certainly one of the places I wanted to be more often. I, I love doing stuff like this. I love doing stuff with you and, and your crew and, and I'm excited for the summit mm-hmm. coming up and I'm excited to, uh, to hopefully be able to have a lot more conversations about this and we can talk about other people who are doing, you know, interesting moves too. I, you know, I'm, I'm excited for what's to come kind of in our world. I I think it's really easy to get morose and down and dejected and go, well, what are we going to do? But, um, and I'm not necessarily saying that I'm, I, I, I fit into this category, but, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a really fun way to think if you can say, well, let's be optimistic and let's try to find ways to be part of a solution as part of just accept that we're part of a problem. And so I'm anxious to continue to listen to crafted and see who else comes on this show and, and what they have to bring. Cause I'm sure all of it is going to, you know, continue to bring us to a beautiful place. Jake, always good to talk. Good to see you. Um, we got a lot of scheming in front of us. I, you will be at the summit. Uh, we're, we're committing you, uh, you, you get a real busy schedule with family and everything else you got going on, but I'm just already just planning that you will be at the summit and, uh, it's going to be great. I think people listening to this podcast, you are coming to the summit. It's like, you're going to be able to try Revel Shine wine for yourself. And we'll have to have like a late night hangout in blister headquarters or something and just get people's perspectives here where others how they're thinking about this where they are in their you know their own thinking and behavior and the rest and uh i think that's going to be a very cool addition to the summit uh on top of everything else that would be fun and the only problem there is you're gonna have to keep me focused because i've been in blister headquarters (laughs) and i will be geeking out about those skis the whole time and nobody i'm not going to want to answer any questions i'm going to be wanting to ask questions about skis (laughs) so I'm looking forward to it. Well, hey, um, thanks for the conversation today and um, good luck with everything. And uh, we'll talk to you again real soon. Sounds good, my friend. Well, that's it for this edition of Crafted. I want to say thanks to Jake for the conversation. Again, there is a code you can use. That code is BLISTERSHIP, like membership, except, yep, BLISTERSHIP. And you can go to Revel Shine Wine, get that discount that Jake mentioned. I don't know how long that code will be good for. So if you're hearing this, maybe go check that out now and see if it's still active. Say if you're listening to this in the year 2031 or something, I don't know, no promises. But anyway, check it out. And honestly, go judge for yourself what you think about wine served out of an aluminum bottle and how it tastes. 
Also, I want to say thanks, of course, as always, to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. Until next time, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again real soon.